Hello and welcome to Since the World's Been Turning. This podcast series is a journey through history, one guided by the lyrics of Billy Joel's song, We Didn't Start the Fire. In this episode, we go back to the origins of the split between North and South Korea, as we learn about another famous statesman, Syngman Rhee. He was a gifted scholar, a revolutionary, a prickly authoritarian ruler, and a dangerous driver. We're joined for this episode by special guest David Fields, a historian and associate director of the Centre for East Asian Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. After World War II, Syngman Rhee famously returned home after 40 years in exile to become the first president of the Republic of Korea. But despite everything he achieved, he ultimately felt like he had failed his country. The year is 1945. World War II has ended. Franklin D. Roosevelt, one of the most popular presidents of all time, has just passed away. And a Korean in exile in America is causing ripples with some outrageous statements. He's claiming Roosevelt made a secret agreement with the communist leader Joseph Stalin, essentially selling Korea in exchange for assistance against Japan. To this day, there's no evidence that the secret agreement ever existed, but there's also no evidence disproving it. And the press in 1945 are having a field day. The alleged plot is splashed over the front pages of America's major newspapers. Many Americans believe that President Truman needs to intervene and make things right for the Koreans. But although he's drawn attention to his cause, things aren't going to unfold the way Syngman Rhee hopes. Korea is about to be divided in two, and the rift will be a lasting source of sadness to him. At the time World War II ends, Syngman Rhee is living with his Western wife, Francesca Donner, in Washington, D.C. He's born 70 years earlier, in 1875, in a very different atmosphere. He grows up in a small village in the Kingdom of Joseon, in what today is known as North Korea. Our guest, David Fields, talks about Syngman Rhee's childhood. Like most revolutionaries or radicals, and Rhee was certainly a revolutionary. He was not born in the bottom of society. He was not born in an impoverished family. He was born in what's called a, a Yangban family, which would be members of the Korean aristocracy. But like, it, there's a lot of parallels with European aristocracies. Just because you had the title didn't mean that you had wealth and power. And so he's born to a Yangban family that had lost most, most of its property and wealth. So he grows up in, in kind of a marginal situation. I wouldn't say impoverished, but he does not grow up in a comfortable situation financially. And his father claim, claimed uh, this Yangban identity so strongly that he really never wanted to do any real work. He wanted to spend his days uh, writing poetry, doing geomancy, the kinds of things that a Korean aristocrat, arist aristocrat would do. And so much of the providing for the family fell to Rhee's mother, who would often do odd work, sewing and the like, to bring in resources for their family. So they weren't, they weren't absolutely poor, but they were, they were what I like to think of as fallen yangban, Korean nobles who did not have a lot of resources. And they didn't have a lot of opportunities for advancement 
And so their entire hope for Sigmund Rhee was that he would take the civil service examination, that he would join the Korean bureaucracy, the bureaucracy of the kingdom of Chosun, and through that means would be able to elevate their family to true Yangban status. Sigmund is his parents' only living son, so the pressure to restore his family to their former glory is all on him. He spends his entire childhood diligently working his way through the Confucian classics, preparing for his exam. But although he's a very good student, his attempts at entering the Joseon bureaucracy are doomed to failure. The system is corrupt, and the very few positions that are available are gained through bribery. Realistically speaking, there was no way he could have succeeded. For hundreds of years, Joseon has been what's called a client state of China. It runs its own domestic affairs, but it's dependent on China for external protection, and China also controls its foreign policy. In the late 19th century, however, the Qing Empire is waning and Japan is growing more influential. Fearing that Japan might try to invade the Korean Peninsula, Joseon enters into a treaty with America in 1882 when Syngman Rhee is seven years old. Our guest, David Fields, discusses the treaty and how it paved the way for the arrival of American missionaries in the kingdom of Joseon. Korea traditionally is a client state of the Qing Empire in China, which meant they were allowed to run their own affairs domestically, but they were dependent on China for external protection. And what foreign policy they had, they ran through Beijing. Um, as the 19th century unfolded, it became pretty clear that the Qing were the declining power, the Japanese were the rising power, and what that meant for Korea was uncertain, but it seemed rather ominous. And so Chinese policymakers, especially Li Hongzhang, cooked up this idea of getting Korea recognized by other states through these treaties that would recognize Korea as an independent kingdom in hopes that that would forestall Japanese designs on the Korean Peninsula. So the Koreans went into negotiating this treaty thinking, we want, a, we want a treaty with the United States so that we can turn to them for defense if anything would happen between us and Japan. From the American perspective, the only thing the Americans were really interested in was as commerce between Japan and China and the United States was increasing, American sailors would get shipwrecked on the Korean coast. And because Korea had no relations with the United States, they would repatriate them through Beijing, which would take months. And sometimes they would be, they would be wondering whether they were even still alive. So the Americans were thinking of this treaty in a very narrow respect. How can we get our sailors repatriated as simply as possible? The Koreans were looking to this treaty as a possible source of national defense against the Japanese. So two very different frames of reference. But it's under those treaties that missionaries are first allowed to enter Korea. And those missionaries will have a, a huge impact on Sigmund Rhee's life. Legend has it that Syngman has contact with Americans from childhood when he becomes temporarily blind and his parents turn to Western medicine in desperation. Syngman Rhee's biographer, Robert T. Oliver, wrote that the physician who treated Syngman was the famous American ambassador, doctor and Protestant missionary, Horace Allen. Prior to the 1880s, Western missionaries were viewed with suspicion by the Joseon establishment. 
But after Dr. Allen saves a royal prince in 1884, following an assassination attempt, he becomes a trusted advisor to the Joseon royal family. Many commentators think it's partly due to his influence that the country starts to become more positive about America. Among his other achievements, Horace Allen is also the man who wrote the very first English-Korean dictionary. The story of Dr. Allen also helping the boy who grew up to be South Korea's future president is a neat metaphor, illustrating how American influence essentially healed Korea. But unfortunately, it isn't true. And so out of desperation, they seek out what they identify as a foreign doctor in Seoul who gives him Western medicine, which in a few days clears up whatever illness he has and, and restores uh, his sight. In his authorized biography in the 1950s, Robert T. Oliver would claim that it was American medical missionary Horace Allen who treated Ree and restored Ree to his sight. And Oliver used this as kind of a metaphor for U.S.-Korean relations as American missionaries going in, saving Ree's life physically first, then saving him spiritually later. And it was a beautiful picture of the American influence on Korea. However, we know that that is absolutely false. He was treated by a foreign doctor, but his wife later wrote Robert T. Oliver and said for the second edition, you have to take out that reference to Alan because it isn't true. Now, they never identified which doctor did treat Rhee because almost certainly he was treated by a Japanese doctor. The Japanese doctors were the only people known to be practicing Western medicine at that point prior to the arrival of Horace Allen. And that would have been embarrassing for a number of reasons to have the story be Rhee's sight was healed by a Japanese doctor rather than an American doctor. But it was certainly the case that he was not treated by Horace Allen, even though that that would kind of become part of the legendary story of Korea. And actually, I had to edit Rhee's Wikipedia page yesterday to remove this reference. I remove it from Wikipedia all the time. It comes back up. I remove it again. So it's, it's still an idea that's out there, but it's um, unfortunately not true. Um, but he would be educated in an American missionary school um, called Peje Middle, Middle School. And at that point, he would come under um, the influence of American missionaries, the heavy influence of American missionaries. And we'll talk about his time in prison, but a little bit later. But when he was in prison, it's an undeniable fact that American missionaries saved his life on many occasions. As Singman Rhee enters his teens, still studying hard for the civil service exam, the tensions within the kingdom of Joseon grow. The Qing Empire and Japan have agreed that neither power will interfere in Korea, but in 1894 there's a peasant uprising, and the Kingdom of Joseon turns to their old protectors, the Qing Empire, for help. When the Japanese learn about this, they dispatch their own troops to the Korean peninsula, defeating both the Chinese and Joseon forces. In the aftermath of this war, Japan controls Korea. But they don't colonise it, at least not yet. They rule indirectly through Koreans who want to modernise the country. Among the changes made at this time is the end of the civil service exam. After years of studying, Singman Rhee must have felt a mixture of emotions when it was abolished. So at the age of 19, all of a sudden the quaggo is done away with. The education he's got up to that point is useless. 
and he needs to find a different way into the Korean civil service. And the Japanese, under these Japanese reforms, they start privileging things like language skills, mathematics, science. The only place those are being taught are American missionary schools. And that's when Ri enters Peje Middle School, hoping to get now a Western education as an alternative route into what is the kingdom of Chosun civil service. But ultimately, while he's there, he gets radicalized by the idea of individual liberty, by the idea of political rights. Um, and so that the, the deterioration of relations and the Sino-Japanese war really shapes the direction of his life. Singman enrolls in the Pai Chai school when he's nearly 20. He draws inspiration from both his Korean and American teachers, the most influential of whom is Seo J. Pil, also known as Philip J. Son. J. Son comes from an aristocratic family, but in the 1880s, he flees to the US in disgrace after participating in a failed rebellion. He's the first Korean to attend an American medical school, and by the time he returns to his home country, he's a doctor as well as a teacher and political activist. While under his tutelage, Singman founds a newspaper which explores notions of individual liberties and rights. He also joins a group founded by Jae Son known as the Independence Club. This group believes that Korea is in danger, either of being absorbed by Japan or by Russia, unless drastic reforms are made. This is Singman Rhee's route into politics. He's increasingly involved in organising public demonstrations against the Joseon government and makes some political gains, but he's not able to enjoy them for long. So, so as I said, Rhee was a radical. And his pioneering reform method was the holding of mass meetings outside the palace in Seoul and in other public squares. He, he recognized that the king was pliable and whoever brought the most pressure at the right moment might be able to move him in the direction of reform. So reorganizes these mass meetings to show the popular will for reform. And he wins a remarkable concession from the king, which is the establishment of a privy council, sort of a council of advisors that Re hopes will be able to play a, a serious role in pushing the kingdom towards reform. Really, I think Re viewed it as the first step towards popular participation in government, or perhaps a constitutional monarchy. But almost immediately after he wins this concession, he makes a very foolish decision, which is to recall exiled Korean reformers who have been um, exiled to Japan for their radical policies. And he does this against the wishes of others in the independence club. And the minute he makes that demand, he splits the movement and also gives the king a perfect excuse to arrest him. The sense is he's gone too far. Um, and Rhee would have been okay because he fled to Peje Middle School, which is protected by extraterritoriality laws. So he stayed there under the protection of American missionaries. But after a few days, he got impatient, came out, got arrested. He, at that point, still probably would have been okay. The missionaries were working very hard to get him released. But he managed to have some associates smuggle a pistol into prison, and he and another one of his associates shot their way out of prison, only to be recaptured a few hours later. And at this point, he is in serious, serious trouble because he's gone from being a, a political prisoner to really someone who could be considered guilty of a felony. He's at, he'll actually be sentenced to death, although the death sentence will be commuted 
but he'll spend, he'll receive a life sentence, which he ends up serving about seven years. Um, but his time in prison after his escape is very harrowing. He's tortured regularly until American missionaries can intervene to get the torture to stop. Korean prisons at this time are rife with cholera and other diseases. And if it hadn't been for the American missionaries giving him high quality food, giving him medicine when he was sick, he almost certainly, well, not almost certainly, but there's there's a very good chance that he would have died in prison in that po- at, at that point. But in prison, he transforms himself from a radical into a really serious thinker. He spends a lot of time reading. He starts writing op-eds. He writes the first Korean English dictionary. He writes his magnum opus called The Spirit of Independence and really transforms himself from a young radical into more of a seasoned intellectual. And he also converts to Christianity at this point. And it's very important because up to this point, even though he's, he's gone to American missionary schools, he has resisted converting which put the American missionaries in a very awkward situation because he's causing a lot of trouble for them. It would be very easy to just turn him over and forget about it, but they recognize his potential as a leader if only he will convert to Christianity. And finally in prison, he does. And so when he is released from prison, the American missionary community gets together and gets him out of the country as quickly as they can so he can get a Western education, complete his Western education in the United States, with the idea that he will come back to Korea as a missionary in the future. Sing Man Ri doesn't make the trip to America alone. As a teenager, Ri had an arranged marriage, and by the time he's imprisoned, he and his wife have a young son. He manages to take his son to America with him, but sadly the boy passes away from diphtheria less than two years after they arrive. Sing Man Ri is haunted by this for the rest of his life. While he's in the US, he divorces his Korean wife and remarries to an Austrian divorcee called Francesca Donner. Francesca, an interpreter for the League of Nations, will become a key part of Ri's administration in the years to come. Here's David Fields discussing Sing Man's son and his second marriage. His personal life is, is similarly kind of interesting. He's, he's married in an arranged marriage when he's 19, just before he goes to prison. He has one son. When he goes to the United States, that son is actually sent with him. So he spends his first year and a half in the United States as a single father, trying to learn English and get an education and also provide for his son. Um, and then after his son had been in the U.S. about 18 months, contracted diphtheria and dies. And it, it tears Re up for the rest of his life. He never quite gets over that. And the minute he becomes, the minute he returns to Korea in 1945, and for the first time in his life, has a little bit of excess cash. He actually sends it to the United States to get a proper gravestone put on his son's grave in Philadelphia. And I mean, we're talking almost 40 years after the fact, and he's not forgotten you know, what his son meant to him. And, and clearly it had bothered him his whole life that he had never been in a situation to give his son a proper burial. He'll marry for a second time in 1933. He'll marry an Austrian um, divorcee named Francesca Donner. And Francesca Donner, uh, later Francesca Rie, will become a major part of his administration. While in America, Singman Rie gets a world-class education. He goes to George Washington University and Harvard, and even gets a PhD from Princeton. 
While he's studying, he meets and befriends the future president, Woodrow Wilson. In 1907, there's also a Christian revival in Korea. Ri, seeing an opportunity to raise awareness, travels around the East Coast and the Midwest, talking to religious groups and discussing Korean Christianity, including the story of his own jailhouse conversion. His speeches aren't explicitly political, but he's encouraging missionaries to send resources to Korea. Korea's now officially a Japanese colony, and he's trying to create as much sympathy as he can. After World War I ends in 1919, the March 1 protest, a peaceful nationwide demonstration, is held in Korea. It's brutally suppressed by Japanese forces, but out of the protest movement, a group of Koreans begin to plan a provisional government in exile. It's based out of Shanghai, and Singman Ri is chosen as the leader. It's hoped that Ri, with his American education and political connections, will be able to advance Korea's cause on the world stage. But his attempts to attend the Versailles Peace Conference of 1919 are not supported by the United States. Singman Ri remains president of the provisional government, but he sees his position more as a ceremonial or symbolic role. He's eventually removed, but he continues to spend his time creating awareness about Korea and trying to help the Korean community wherever he can. For instance, he gets involved in establishing and running Korean educational institutions in Hawaii. In Europe, the political climate changes in the 1930s during the Great Depression in the lead-up to World War II. Nationalist and fascist movements begin to grow in popularity, and in the Pacific, Japanese militarism also begins to increase. Singman Ri is keenly aware of the threat. In the early 1930s, he returns from Hawaii and starts trying to warn Americans of the risk Japan poses. He even writes a book about it. When the Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor in December 1941, he's seen almost as a prophet and acquires minor celebrity status. David Fields discusses Ri's attitude to Japan following the invasion of Manchuria and how he was treated during World War II. After 1933, when the Japanese invade Manchuria, Ri recognizes that Japan and China, and perhaps Japan and the United States, are now on a collision course that could lead to war. So he shifts back to politics and lobbying full-time. And as the Japanese get sucked deeper and deeper into the Second Sino-Japanese War in China, he believes that a war between Japan and the United States is inevitable. And in the summer of 1941, publishes this remarkable book called Japan Inside Out, in which he claims to be an eyewitness of the inner workings of the Japanese empire as a Korean, and that sooner or later, the Japanese are going to attack the United States. And by the way, if the United States only would have stood up to Japan over Korea back in 1905 or in 1919, they would have put in Japan back in its place and they would not be threatened the way they are now. This book is published in the summer of 1941. It goes through two printings 
before December 7th, 1941, when the Japanese attack Pearl Harbor. And Rhee is transformed overnight from kind of a marginal figure to something of a prophet, to the voice calling in the wilderness, saying, why didn't you Americans listen to me? I've been saying this for 20 years. You've been saying that, no, the Japanese, you know, we can appease the Japanese. They will be satisfied with Korea, satisfied with Manchuria, satisfied with parts of China. And now look what's happened. Now the Japanese have attacked you at Pearl Harbor and you're not ready for the war. And this gave Rhee tremendous credibility throughout World War II as he lobbied very, very hard for the United States to recognize the Korean provisional government, which is still in existence, and to give Korea lend-lease aid so that Koreans can join the fight against Japan. Now, he is unsuccessful at both those things. But what he does do is he gets the United States to commit to supporting Korea's independence in the future through the Cairo Declaration in December of 1943. Now, Rhee is not the only reason they do this, but Rhee is bringing immense political pressure on the FDR administration through Congress. And that is part of the story of the Cairo Declaration, that the United States commits to fostering a free and independent Korea in due course after the war is over. During the war, Rhee is a, he's a minor American celebrity. He gets to meet, he gets invited to the White House to meet Eleanor Roosevelt. He meets um, Einstein. He's appearing on television, various television shows. He's, he's a bona fide B-list celebrity. In August of 1945, Korea officially becomes independent. But the struggle isn't over yet for Syngman Rhee. He's been following events in Eastern Europe closely, and he's afraid that if America doesn't act, his home country will fall into the hands of the Soviet Union. Although he never wanted the country to be divided, Rhee's lobbying did play a part in what happened next. The division of Korea was the last thing we wanted, but his lobbying did contribute directly to that decision. Okay, so what happens throughout the war is Re is demanding that something be done for Korea, and he gets the Cairo Declaration, but but that is not enough. And in spring of 1945, it became it becomes pretty clear to Re from watching the Soviets' actions in Eastern Europe that the Soviet Union will probably end the war occupying Korea and that they will probably try to bring Korea into the Soviet empire. And what, what Reed does out of desperation after FDR dies is he announces to the American press that FDR made a secret treaty with Joseph Stalin selling Korea to the Soviets in return for the Soviets entering the war against Japan. Now there is no evidence that this happened whatsoever. There are still Korean scholars today who will believe that this is true. There's absolutely no evidence that anyone has uncovered that this is the case. But no one could say definitively also that it wasn't the case. And this grabbed headlines all across the United States, especially in McCormick's Chicago Tribune, which had been a, a strong opponent of FDR. And what it does is it mobilizes re-supporters in the United States, including organizations that he founded, such as the Christian Friends of Korea and Catholic Friends of Korea and several U.S. congressmen to demand of Truman that something be done for Korea to make sure that it does not fall into the lap of the Soviet Union and become, rather than an independent state, a vassal state of the Soviet Union. And they begin demanding that Truman take action. Now, the problem is, as it becomes clear that the Japanese are going to surrender, the nearest U.S. forces to Korea are six weeks away 
while the Soviets are already crossing the Yalu River. So there's nothing that Truman can do to prevent the Soviet occupation of Korea, except suggest a joint occupation. Now, part of me thinks that he did this hoping that the Soviets would say no and occupy all of Korea anyway. And then the Truman administration could say, we tried and it didn't work. Instead, the Soviets say yes, and they agreed to a joint occupation, which means the United States now has to take on an occupation that it had no plans for whatsoever, that it had no troops trained for. And the reason Stalin says yes is the a few days later, he asked the United States for a role in the occupation of Japan. So a Soviet presence in the Japanese occupation. And the Americans say no. All right. And already you have Soviet US relations in a, in sort of a delicate state over this American refusal when Stalin had been accommodated, had been accommodating. But even worse, you have the United States now taking on an occupation that they have no plans for whatsoever. Now they are never imagining that this occupation of Korea will become a permanent division. But of course, that is what happens. In 1948, Rhee, now aged 73, officially becomes the president of the Southern Zone, the Republic of Korea. He's the front runner in the presidential race for many reasons. He's well connected in America and he speaks English. As a revolutionary, he also has a very long track record, going all the way back to the Independence Club and his defiance of the King of Joseon. Rhee also has the advantage of not having lived in Korea under the Japanese occupation. Unlike many other Korean politicians, he can't be accused of collaboration because he simply wasn't there. After the leaders of the moderate party are assassinated, he doesn't really have any serious rivals, and he wins the election with more than 90% of the vote. However, he finds that once he's taken up the position of president, dealing with Americans brings its own challenges. David Fields discusses how he fared in the late 1940s. Is he has very, very influential friends and supporters in the United States. Now, many people misunderstand and think that his friends were in the US occupation of Korea. In fact, the, the honeymoon between Rhee and General Hodge lasts all of about seven hours. And from the second day Rhee is in Korea, his relations with the American occupation are very, very contentious because they want to use Rhee as a figurehead to support their own policies. When Rhee has his own clear agenda of what he wants for Korea, which is an end to both occupations as soon as possible and a reunification of Korea. Um, what Rhee does have is Rhee has friends in Congress, He's got friends in all of the major American denominations, the Methodists, the Presbyterians, who will support him at any cost and who will bring political pressure on the Truman administration, on American diplomats to do what they can to support Sigmund Rhee. Um, so when you add all of those things together, Rhee is an incredibly strong situation. And when elections are held, um, in the South, in the Southern zone only in 1948, Rhee easily wins. Now, he, he easily wins election to the Korean Assembly, and then the first election is indirect. So he's elected by the other Assembly members, but he's easily by that point, the politician in Korea that has the most popular support. And this is part of the reason why the Soviets will not allow 
an election in the northern zone. Because if they are, if they have a competitive election in the northern zone, there's no doubt that Sigmund Rhee would have been the winner there as well. He's easily the most popular figure in Korea. In South Korea, the people's excitement at being liberated from Japanese rule is soon tempered by newfound economic hardship. Life in the post-liberation period is tough. Traditionally, most of the agriculture in the country is centred in the south, but the industry and the electricity generation is based in the north. The division is done in a hurry. There's no time to address the practical problems it poses. There's also no communication between the two countries. Families are separated, and some will go their whole lives without ever seeing their loved ones again. Even today, the border is closed, with armed soldiers patrolling on either side. David Fields talks now about the division and the Korean War. Is when Korea is liberated from the, Jap from the Japanese empire, at the same time, they're divided in two. And, and I, I like to make the analogy, I mean, I, I live in Wisconsin, but uh, you, know, you could make the same analogy, I don't know, maybe in New Zealand. <laughs> Imagine overnight the, the North and South Islands are separated from each other. And there's no commerce, there's no communication, there's nothing. And in Korea, this is a huge problem because so much of the industry, the electricity generation is done in the North, so much of the food is grown in the South, and all of a sudden overnight, there's a hard border gone up there. And it throws Korea into chaos economically. That and the fact that Korea is severed from the Japanese empire overnight, which probably should not have been done either. So Korea is an economic chaos basically from 1945 till some point in the late 1950s, because then the war happens and the war devastates almost all of the Korean Peninsula. In the first six months of the war, the lines are constantly moving up and down the Korean Peninsula. The United States is, is carpet bombing every city in North Korea of any size whatsoever. And, and so it's very, very difficult, economically speaking, um, for Koreans in, in the post-liberation period and the early days of the Republic. In fact, it's, it's no exaggeration to say that economically speaking, their lives were much better off under Japanese colonialism until the very latter stages of the war. Now, in, a, in maybe a, a nationalist sense, they have their independence, so that's better. But most Koreans viewed the division of their country as a trauma that is almost on par with colonization. So they don't really view themselves as liberated as long as their country is divided in half. And it's not hard to understand why. I mean, if you're a Korean living in the South and you have family members in the North who happen to be on the North side, when the line was drawn, there was an exchange of people for the, you know, the first year or two. But once that border is solidified, you're not hearing from your relatives ever again. Some of them will go their whole lives with never hearing from their relatives again. So even, even in this nationalistic, spiritual kind of sense, liberation, uh, it, it's a joyous occasion immediately, but as the reality dawns of what life might be like under a joint occupation and then a permanent division, it, it's hard for them to feel that their lives have improved either spiritually or economically. It's a very, very difficult time. In 1949, the Americans withdraw from the country. They don't listen to Syngman Rhee's warnings that the North will invade.
But once more, his predictions are proved right. When war breaks out a few months later, in 1950, America returns, providing troops and support. The Chinese, now under the communist leadership of Mao Zedong, lend their support to North Korea. The war isn't just about Korea anymore, but the sanctity of borders between communist and capitalist states. The domino theory, the idea that once one nation became communist, any surrounding nations would also fall, is a popular notion in America at this time. Nearly two million American soldiers fight in the country. They're initially told they'll be home by Thanksgiving. But in fact, the war lasts until 1953, when Joseph Stalin dies and an armistice is finally put in place. Today, the Korean War is sometimes known in America as the Forgotten War, overshadowed by World War II and the conflict in Vietnam, which begins only two years later. It takes South Korea years to rebuild. The war has devastated the country, but in the aftermath of the conflict, Syngman Rhee is able to make some significant lasting changes to Korean land law. If you'd like to hear more about the Korean War in more detail, have a listen to episode 12 of this series of Since the World's Been Turning. Our guest, David Fields, discusses Korea in the post-war period. Everything but the Busan perimeter. So, you know, a few kind of from um, um, Daejeon down to Busan is, is a theater of conflict and it is destroyed. And so it takes Korea a very, very long time to come out of that. Also, Korea has, there's about 2 million civilians who are killed in the war. So there is a lot of labor shortage and upheaval. Um, I, I guess you could say on the positive side, the war allows Ri to enact some radical policies, including land reform. So Korea has a highly unequal land ownership struggle that goes all the way back to the kingdom of Chosun. Ri begins planning a land reform in the late 1940s as president, but it's really the Korean War that allows him to push that through. And large estates are broken up. Korean tenant farmers for the first time in their lives become landowners. And really the, the foundation of Korean economic development in a very, very basic and foundational way is laid during this land reform, this post-Korean land reform. But it will take decades, really until the 1970s and 1980s, before the Korean economy really starts to hum. So we cannot really take too much credit for that, except for this land reform, which is, it does not get enough attention, I think. Rhee is usually viewed as an ultra right-wing anti-communist, when really he is more, he pursues policies that, at least from the American perspective, would be identified as socialist. All right. He doesn't pursue them that well because his administration is not very effective, but it's, it's almost impossible to overstate the importance of this land reform that happens in Korea in the 1950s. When historians look back on Syngman Rhee, they often use words like paternalistic, authoritarian, and dictatorial to describe him. Rhee himself sees democracy as something that South Korea has to ease into slowly. The metaphor he uses when he writes about it is that a child who has spent all his life seated 
can't suddenly start running. While his regime has the trappings of democracy, Ri is ultimately in charge, and he's not afraid to act outside the law. However, executions or imprisonments of his rivals are rare. It's more common for him to intimidate them into changing their mind about running. In 1952, worried that he might be about to lose power, Ri manages to change the way the government operates, altering the constitution so there's a direct vote for the president. During this time, he uses strong-arm tactics, arresting his political opponents or intimidating them until they give in. He will use similar tactics several times over the next eight years. But although he has flaws as a leader, Rhee's popularity with ordinary people continues right through the 1950s. He's also viewed warmly in America, despite defying the administration at times. 1960 is Syngman Rhee's last year in power. He's now in his 80s and suffering from dementia. When electoral fraud committed by his party comes to light, his luck finally runs out. What, what happens is the election of 1960 is rigged. Not the presidential election, but the local elections. And they're rigged so members of Rhee's party are elected. Um, and people know this, and they're angry about it, and they start protesting. And when they start protesting, several people are killed. And now you have a situation where there's essentially a popular uprising against Rhee's government. The other thing that is important to understand is by this point, Rhee has dementia. And it's not even entirely clear if he is always running the country. And that's one of the reasons that Rhee's administration, I think, becomes less and less efficient over time is he has less of a firm grasp on the situation. And so there's immense, actually there's, there's massive student protests in Seoul. Some of them march on the Blue House and Rhee actually receives a delegation of about five students at the insistence of the American embassy. And he comes out of that meeting either having had a come to Jesus moment and th there's a possibility there that when he meets these young student radicals demanding for change, that something clicks in his mind and he sees himself as a 19-year-old taking on the king of Korea and all of a sudden realizes that he's gone too far and it's time for him to surrender. The, the romantic in me wants to believe that story. <laughs> What's more likely is his associates were finally able to get through to him and saying, we have to go the bureaucracy, the military is threatening to turn against us, and it's time to leave. Wh whichever those are true, the truth is he offers to resign and then, in fact, does resign and turns over, to Korea, turns over Korea to a, a different democratic government, which unfortunately only lasts about nine months because factionalism has gone too far. They can't keep it under control. And then there is a military coup in 1961, and Korea will be ruled as a military dictatorship from then until 1988. Um, but it's, it's definitely anger over this blatantly rigged election in 1960 that causes popular protest to really force the re-administration from power. Syngman Rhee lives out his final years in Hawaii, 
before dying of a stroke in 1965 at the age of 90. Today, the Western view of him is fairly sympathetic, largely thanks to the years he spent in America and his stance as America's ally against the Japanese, the North Koreans and the Soviet Union. South Korea's massive economic progress, the miracle on the Han River, was made possible by Syngman Rhee's rule. In 2022, South Korea has one of the largest economies in the world. But at the time of his death, Syngman Rhee felt like he'd failed. He longed for the reunification of North and South, and the fact he was never able to make this happen was a source of disappointment and bitterness to him. David Fields speaks about Rhee's legacy. He ends his presidency thinking that his life has been one dismal failure after another. And he even writes an American friend in the mid-1950s thinking, saying that he's contemplated suicide many times because he can't cope <laughs> with all that he has sacrificed in his life. And for what? You know, he worked tirelessly for Korean independence, only to have Korea colonized by Japan. He lobbied tirelessly for Korean independence in the post-war period, only to have Korea divided by the Soviet Union and the United States. He, lo he lobbies tirelessly for the United States to stay involved in Korea, only to have them withdraw and have uh, a, just a devastating civil war. Now, his main success is in 1953, he negotiates a mutual defense pact between the Republic of Korea and the United States. And this is a defense pact that the Americans do not want to give him. And he uses all of the leverage and all of the political support he has to force this on Truman. And he eventually gets it basically by saying, if you don't give me this defense pact, I will try to restart the Korean War on my own means. And eventually, the Americans are convinced that it's better to give him what he wants. So what I find remarkable about Rhee's life is in prison in the 1890s, he has this vision of Korea, that Korea needs defense from without and development from within. And by the end of his term as president of the ROK, he achieves half of this vision for half the Korean Peninsula. So by the end of his presidency, the ROK is locked in a very tight security alliance with the United States that is going to guarantee Korea's defense for the foreseeable future, giving Korea space to do internal development, which Rhee is unable to do himself. He lays the foundation. He can't do it himself. But actually, it's Park Chung-hee and other Korean leaders who will come behind him and really jumpstart Korean development to the point where now Korea is the 10th or 11th largest economy in the world today. And we have the miracle on the Han of the late 1980s and 1990s. In a way, you could say that that is Rhee's legacy, that that is his vision fulfilled. But he never thought of it that way. The fact that Korea was divided negated most of the positive things that had come of that. And he felt the fact that he was unable to bridge that division and unable to force reunification that, that made almost everything else he had accomplished in life a failure. And I think he died a very sad and bitter person thinking that life had been unusually harsh on him. Thanks for listening to Since the World's Been Turning. I'm Robin Harrison. Thanks to our special guest, David Fields. 
David is a historian and associate director of the Centre for East Asian Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's written a rap battle about Syngman Rhee, Stalin and President Truman, which you can find online at davidpfields.com. Thanks to Will McGillivray for the introduction music and to our writer, Elena McPhee. Please join us again next time as we continue to explore the people, events and places behind Billy Joel's iconic song. We'll discuss the payola scandal, when record companies got caught secretly paying radio stations to play their songs. For more episodes and information, you can follow NZ Pods, that's P-O-D-Z, on Instagram and Facebook, or you can visit our website, www.nzpods.com, that's P-O-D-Z dot com. Giving us reviews and ratings on your podcast service helps us share this project with more listeners, so please do share your thoughts. We greatly appreciate your help in keeping this project going. Thanks again for listening, and please come back next time to hear more from Since the World's Been Turning.